Arde is the one who's the escape artist too. Oh. Just uh, not really artist. Just um, he just does it. He just does it. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 19 of So Poetry. Um, this is a uh, sad-ish episode because it's the end of season two, but it's exciting because season three is going to start. I don't know. Um, I was trying to come up with a good introduction, and that's that's the best I could come up with. Um, yeah, so this is, this is the last episode of season two. Um, season three will most likely start sometime in October. Uh, be on the lookout for different uh, like clip art, thumbnail art for the for the episodes. Uh, potentially a different intro song. I've been I, I've been listening back to some of the uh, old podcasts and it's good, but I'm gonna see if I can if I can change it up a little bit. Um, but regardless of that, um, I am talking with a dear dear new friend. Um, do you prefer Julie or Julia? I meant to ask this before we, before we started, but I, I did not. Among friends, Julie. Okay. But professionally, Julia? Yeah. Okay. So, um, Julia Leveron, who is an amazing poet, awesome translator, um, all around, just wonderful person. Um, we were, uh, at Vermont Studio Center at the same time. Um, so if you've noticed a little bit of a theme in the last, like, handful of episodes, um, I'm still talking to poets that I know, but it's, the circle of poets that I know is slowly expanding, um, and it's not just Baltimore people. But anyway, um, would you like to introduce, talk about yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, I have lived in Maryland. Um, I was at the University of, for my MFA, I lived um, closer to D.C., but I love Baltimore, so um, I guess, in a way, I'm a Baltimore poet. You know, my heart, my heart is partly there and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so I am a poet, translator. Um, <clears throat> I translate from the Spanish. I, let's see, I teach, I live in Dallas, um, I am an adjunct at the University of Texas at Dallas, I get to teach Spanish and poetry. Oh, nice. Yeah, which is a sweet deal, um, I guess it's like a silver lining of being an adjunct, um, they can split me across departments, um, and it's working for me right now, I love it. Um, and I'm an editor, um, I oh, run... Nice. The magazine, literary magazine, Sakura Review, Sakura, and we are an annual publication. Um, been going for, what, nine years now? Um, shit. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Started in Maryland, actually. Um, that's why it's called Sakura for the... Uh, oh, the... Fairy Blossoms, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. well, wow. Yeah. That's... Jeez, I, I had no idea that, it, that that magazine had been going for that long. That's awesome. That's incredible. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Uh, so, we at 
the studio center, um, I didn't have as much time hanging out with you as I did with some of the other writers there. Um, cause you were there for half of the like, session. I don't know, like mm-hmm. period, I r- residency period, half of the month. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, we swapped chat books, I believe, or mm-hmm. yes. Um, which I've read through yours and I love it. Yeah. Um, um, but so I'm, um, one of the coming out this uh, fall with JMWW. Oh, that's right. What, um, what's the <laughs> name of, of the new one? Little Escape. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to add that into the description. JMW, which is JMWW is Baltimore based, yeah. right? <laughs> Told you. <laughs> so would you, like, I'm, I'm interested about this, that, like, I, um, I've not lived in a, a lot of different places, but so far, mm-hmm. every place that I've lived doesn't, when I arrive there, there's not this sensation of, like, oh, this is, like, this is a place that I should be. It's more of, like, this is mm-hmm. a place that I am, and I have to kind of cultivate it into the place that like works for me mm-hmm. um when you were in baltimore did you feel like a particular the times that you came up to baltimore did you feel like a particular pull of the city or did it like did this seem like this was a place that like yes i want like i actively want to be here mm-hmm. um yes i felt the pull um the the city has you know its own i suppose aura it's it's um you know culmination of aesthetics and um you know, activities that um for me um i love the balance there um with the the old the old buildings i love especially um row houses um with uh the kind of energy of the art especially um there's a lot of art happening there and that um you know is attractive to me in a city i was talking with someone two days ago um who had uh well two people who had lived in baltimore um done some um uh some school there and uh one of them said you know um Baltimore is one of the places that graduate students like MFA students um kind of uh assert themselves, insert themselves into more fully because of its particular aura um, where graduate students and maybe, um, I don't know, um, like Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That actually was the example they gave graduate students in Ohio. Like, oh, I'm here, but I'm going to focus on my program and the school and not really explore or... um, Oh, okay. The city, but Baltimore is a city that um, they think, and I agree, um, that becomes part of the, uh, the university experience if you're passing through, you know? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, uh, another thing that Baltimore has that I love is seafood, proximity to the ocean. <laughs> uh, so, like, that's my checklist art, check, seafood, check, um, awesome buildings, check. <laughs> oh. Hmm. Yeah, and there's a sense of, um, you know, hardworking 
ness there too that is important. Yes, I I would attest, I would definitely attest to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I I have a feeling that you and I have not talked about this, but um, for those of you who don't know, um, I was born and raised like just outside of New Orleans, um, mm-hmm. and growing up, the city never really had any sort of appeal to me. Um, like mm-hmm. I knew it was there. I went into it a little bit, but like, you know, my parents didn't really ever go into the city. Um, aside, like my dad occasionally worked at one of the, um, like the local, he worked for the local power company. Um, mm-hmm. and they had an office downtown and I don't, I think that he, he worked there briefly, but, um, yeah, it wasn't until I was in maybe late high school that, like, I started wandering around New Orleans, but only because of my brother's sort of insistence. Like, he, he would go out there and either just drive around or park somewhere and just walk around. Yeah. And, he, and he started dragging me along, and that's when I was like, oh, shit, this is actually kind of a cool place. But I feel like I missed all of the, like, the weirdness and the uniqueness of the late 80s and early 90s, or the late mm-hmm. 80s through the 90s. Um, but there is sort of a... When I started getting to know the city, there was sort of a prevailing attitude or vibe that I picked up of like, no one really gives a shit. And yeah. like, I don't, I don't know if that's still the attitude. Um, and I, I know that it's probably not like overall, everybody in New Orleans has, has this experience about the city um, or feels this way about the city or about themselves in the city. But that was like, and it may have been because it's like, I really didn't give a shit about New Orleans that that's sort of what I picked up on. But um, like coming to Baltimore, there's definitely a sense of um, engagement that I mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't really feel um, when I was in New Orleans. Cause I like in Baltimore, I still doesn't, it still doesn't feel to me like this is, this is my, I don't know, mm-hmm. this is my home, but so there's, there's still some distance for me, but like I just objectively and kind of on being an outsider looking at the city, there's a definite sense of like people really, really care about Baltimore and yeah. they're, they're willing to like put in their time and their energy and their resources to like try to make things better. And it doesn't, doesn't always work. Um, yeah. They might be working in, you know, like wrong or competing directions, but there's still that like that desire of like, I, you know. I want, I want to give something back. I want to, I want to try to help. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, there is something to be said about the not giving a shit attitude in New Orleans, right? That's magical. That's um, freeing. Um, yeah. You know, the, you could call it a party culture, I guess, but it's more just um, c- celebrating um, that um, edge between life and death, you know, mm-hmm. um, where um, you the um uh they the kind of like general attitude you know i've only been there a few times so i'm really generalizing but um um, but i do love it um the attitude is you know like uh take advantage you know live it up um and uh i think that for some people that way of living can be a little too tempting um Mm. can be a kind of trap um, but it's certainly a wonderful place to visit. And then if you can kind of channel that into your art, because it's such an artistic city. Oh, yeah. Uh, obviously. Um, 
then you can be really productive and you can sustain a life um, on that. Yeah. So I, I think I think I might need to, and I, I just realized this. I think I might need to update my um, my pronouncement that the city felt like no one gives a shit. Because um, I, as you were talking. Um, I remembered sort of like the growing up, what I heard is the sort of catchphrase of New Orleans, which is uh, laissez les bon temps rouler, right. which is, you know, let the good times roll. So it's that. And I think I think for me, it feels it actually probably feels more like um, like feast days or like the festival days, like Twelfth Night sort of a thing that's like, you know, it's kind of there's this like whimsy and there's this sense of like, you know, like like a like a diet cheat day, that's mm-hmm. like oh it doesn't you know it's like it doesn't really matter or like mm-hmm. you know you, you know you might as well just have fun because you know just it's like just give it and just 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 let it roll, yeah. um, and I, I I definitely agree that I think that that can be um, there's a like a balance to that that you need to maintain. And it's, I think it's real easy to slip off of that balance into the, mm. the sort of unchecked hedonism of, um, yeah. you know, just like, all right, cool, whatever. Or the, the more sort of, maybe not like close to nihilism, but not like a much more good natured sort of celebratory <laughs> nihilism mm-hmm. of like, you know, eh, it doesn't matter sort of yeah. a thing. Um, I like, you have this word decadence, um, Ooh, yes. the word decay, right? Mm-hmm. I think of New Orleans when I think of decadence or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think, I think one of the things for me that like New Orleans as a city feels very, very weird because I, I can't, I can't imagine it any other place than like Southern Louisiana, but it's also really difficult for me to imagine it as a city that exists in the South because, because it's very much not just in the U S right. It's just, it's just like anomaly. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like, like Baltimore has a little bit of that, that feeling and a little bit of that flavor that it's like, it's not really a Northern city. Cause you know, like I've been to Boston, I've been to New York, I've been to, you know, like Philly and Pittsburgh and stuff. And like, those feel like, like New England cities. Mm -hmm. Um, by Baltimore feels it's like it's a it's it's different. It's just it's a little bit off, and it's not really a like a, a traditional Southern city either. It feels like it's kind of stuck in this in this weird, mm. um, like this in between space or this mm. like this this place that used to exist that doesn't exist anymore, but still mm. there's this bubble over this over the Baltimore. It's like it's but mm-hmm. it still exists here, and I feel like New Orleans had had that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not really spent a whole lot of time in New Orleans after Katrina. Um, yeah. So I, and I know it's like that threw off the balance and the, the sort of like energy of the city a whole lot. So I'm not, I'm not really sure what it feels like now. Well, I've only been there after. So, yeah. um, so I, if I get that sense from it, then, you know, it's still thriving in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, have there been other places that you lived that you get the same, like not the same draw that Baltimore has, but a similar sort of like connection to the, to the place? Mm, St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, St. Louis is, uh, it also has a bubble. Um, because right outside of it is Missouri, and there's a huge distinction. You know, like St. Louis is, in, in some senses, not in Missouri. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's its own um, entity. And um, I... I love it. I I fell in love with St. Louis pretty much immediately. Um, it's uh, very um, it's sprawling, but it's very contained. Um, it's very easy to get around. You know, driving culture in the Midwest. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> very connected, um, and uh, there's there's so so much to do. There's you know so much culture there. Um, I think that the culture isn't as defined as New Orleans culture, maybe even like Baltimore. Um, but it, uh, the people there um, have a real sense of um, pertinence to um, St. Louis, St. Louis, um, as opposed to Missouri. Um, it's doesn't have as much seafood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it does borrow the Cajun, or, you know, uh, it manifests the Cajun culture. It's not necessarily borrowing from New Orleans. It's, uh, I think, sometimes referred to as, like, a second New Orleans or, like, a little sister of New Orleans. Um, um, and it's got the same kind of industrial, um, feel, old industrial feel that um, Baltimore does, you know, Rust Belt, um, um, great, uh, great buildings, great old buildings. I lived in a shotgun apartment, which I adored. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a two family apartment right in the city. Um, and, uh, you know, every house in the street pretty much had, uh, at least been, initially built to be this and you know some of them had been converted um um some of the apartment divisions had been undone um but uh um you know that uh that feeling of connection with the history of the place is important um was important to me feeling like i was part of it um my neighborhood, um, the Grove, um, the the gay neighborhood, um, gay strip of um, bars and restaurants on Manchester Avenue, really is exploding now. Um, the time that I lived there, three years, just kind of like seasonally, there was a new business. Like I would drive down Manchester and see a place that I had never seen before that was, you know, brand new and looked really interesting. Um, lots of uh, abandoned or foreclosed um, buildings still, um, but those are being bought up uh, because it's just booming um, this this neighborhood. And I think that um, the LGBTQ pride there has a lot to do with it. I think that people really need that place to um, um, feel this maybe yeah celebratory um element of the st louis culture mm-hmm. what it can you know that side of it what it can be um that new orleans style i yeah. guess like we were talking about yeah so living 
like in and or around Dallas, how does since we're talking about cities, how how is your what does Dallas as a city feel like for you? Is it is it inviting? Is it does it feel like it wants you to be there, or is there like, resistance <laughs> to to your presence? Um, it is huge. It's way too big for me. Um, <laughs> there's just so much to it. Um, the Metroplex is just like this giant. Um, it feels like Dallas wants me to be there because it wants um, me to contribute to its also growth. Um, it's just like unfathomable how many people are coming to the area. Um, like I've heard 3,000 a month move here. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, lots and lots of money, um, lots of um, public projects going on, um, not necessarily grassroots projects, not projects for the people, but like just business growth, oh, like enormous, um, yeah, yeah. enormous industry growth here. Um, someone, uh, the same person, um, same Baltimore person, um, colleague of mine was telling me that um, Dallas is now what Baltimore was um, back, you know, decades ago when it was booming. Um, so this is a place that is pulling in people um, because it's on a roll. It's it's just, um, uh, I don't want to say like using uh, <laughs> residents. But, you know, we, we are a part of this industry growth here. And um, yeah. it, it needs, it, it loves, Dallas loves all the bodies that it's accruing. Um, doesn't quite have all of the capacity, but it's it's keeping up, you know. Um, I'm thinking about, like, the highway projects because they can't really sustain all of this, uh, the, the traffic um, from, from people who have uh, been brought in recently. Yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three thousand a month. <laughs> That's like I can't. I can't even. Like, I can. I can just barely picture that. But that, like, but as you were talking about it, though, when you when you said not like you don't want to say that it's using people. But that that's sort of the like, like you become. Part of the machine. <laughs> yeah, it's like you become part of the city in a much different way that you become part of the city. Um, cause like Baltimore feels to me that there's a, um, there's like a certain type of person, it seems that will come to Baltimore thinking they're only going to be there for a little while. And then they just sort of like stay mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's people putting down roots in Baltimore or Baltimore putting its roots into you, but there's, mm-hmm. there's some sort of something that you're like, yeah, I think I'm just going to stick around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a much, there would be a much different sensation than going to Dallas and like mm-hmm. being sort of swept up and just yeah. like gobbled into this mm-hmm. now put on a conveyor belt <laughs> yeah and I, I feel like um, one I love the fact that I can hear Blue Jays in being picked up by your microphone yeah um, two I feel like they would probably be something similar to like LA or New York but also a little bit mm-hmm different that mm-hmm. like New York feels to me that it's like it, you it's inevitable but that you become part of the, the city or yeah. part of the like the industry that's there but it doesn't like the city itself could care less if you're mm-hmm. there or not whereas yeah. like Dallas almost like the way that you described it almost seems like it's like eager or greedy it's like oh yeah it's like I want to get everybody that I can 
So like not not necessarily caring about you individually, but caring about you in the sense that it's like oh it's like yes another body great you know it's yeah, like I'm gonna I, I'm gonna suck you up and then I'm gonna like the next person in line I'm gonna get you too. Yeah, my monetary contribution to the city. Yeah, um, it's growth. You know though, um, Dallas um, with its growth, it really needs to uh, develop its culture more or its its cultural. Um, <clears throat> venues um you know there is um quite a bit of um you know um music um and museums um uh, but um there needs to be more poetry in dallas um there is some but it's very um it's very piecemeal um everybody who's doing it is doing it um separately um and we need more cohesiveness um because there are poets here yeah i am a poet um there is not an mfa in dallas not to say that like we need more mfas or that MFAs <laughs> but um but that is a thing that attracts writers and um yeah. with with you know there are a ton of universities and there are poetry programs, their PhDs, MAs, um, and uh, certainly undergraduate. Um, that's unfathomable to me that there's not an MFA, like a creative writing MFA in yeah. Dallas. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, UT Dallas is talking about it. Um, they've been talking about it for a while, but I think that the higher ups are kind of warming a little bit more to the idea. Um and, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm one of very few poets, um, on the UT Dallas campus, but I'm trying to, you know, kick things, um, into gear. I'm starting a new reading series. that's called Poems Anon, where I put, uh, not just undergrads, but graduate students and faculty in the center of these, um, huge stairs in, uh, the middle of campus, um, when everybody's eating lunch, uh, and I'm going to have us read, um, published poems, um, out loud, but without naming the title or the poet and, uh, created, created a Tumblr where I will archive the poems with title, with poet, you know, all those attributions, uh, -huh. kind of like uh, make like a running, um, um, blog of these pieces of art, empathy, politics, um, that need to be, um, you know, recognized as part of UT Dallas's, you know, just like uh, potential, um, but poems need to be on people's minds and everyday life too. They need to be in their ears. Um, it's, I mean, I don't have to convince you, but it's, <laughs> it's so important to have uh, this, um, this mode of uh, feeling and expression um, available to everybody. Um, poetry is really important right now because of its, um, you know, brevity, its transportability, um, and its high, high thought and empathy. Um, we, we need to use it to process things that are going on right now, political, social, environmental. Hmm. So that, that hits on a lot, a lot of things that I wanted to ask you, but, um, 
see if I can synthesize this into... Um, so I'm assuming that you probably, on a day-to-day -day basis, interact with more non-poets than you do poets, correct? Yeah. <laughs> um, what has been... Part of the <laughs> <laughs> um, Has there been a sort of um, general response that you get from non-poets when you try to engage with them about poetry or like, do you, do you attempt? Um... I do. Yeah. I, I always um, am <laughs> open uh, about my um, poetic uh, involvement. I, you know, it feels like kind of a confession sometimes like, <laughs> out, like I'm a poet, um, <laughs> But, um, you know, um, there's a surface level fascination, like, oh, poetry, cool. Uh, but there's then a subsequent unwillingness to um, consider the very, um, the very contemporary or, you know, I guess, um, postmodern um, mode of poetry, which is, um, increasingly, or uh, maybe it's returning um, uh, the the non-lyrical um, way that poetry has been um, dealt in, that it has been dealing in this for decades, right? Um, mm -hmm. People um, tend to think of poetry as being rhyming, um, as being metered, um, formal, um, <clears throat> and, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, uh, you know, as trite as that can be to us um, with our free verse brains, tendencies, expectations, um, um, desires, uh, you know, we've been getting away from the memory potential of rhyme and meter. Um, it's easier to memorize a poem um, and then share it with others if you have those um, sonic aids. Um, and poetry needs to be shared. That's how it started, right? Um, way, yep. way back, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that morality. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's pleasing and it is, um, it's playful, um, but rhetorically it's, uh, you know, the, the rhyming, metric element of poetry is um, a, a way to kind of seal the words in our brains and our bodies too. We, we feel it. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not a poet who writes like that. Um, lots of internal rhyme, sure, but, and rhyme, um, it grates on me because I've been trained to let it grate on me. And mm. especially, well, this is like a U.S. American trend, right? And other countries, regions, um, the rhyme is still practiced and um, revered uh, today. Yes. Yeah. I, um, it would be interesting to, well, two things. It would, one, it would be very interesting to me to, um, to attempt to publish, like if somebody wanted to write or wanted to engage with rhyming poetry for the, for the, the way that, or the, the means that you were talking about that, like mm -hmm. trying to get back to the, the sort of sonic, 
um, earworm aspects of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> it would be very interesting to try to publish a collection of poetry like that that is not written down. <laughs> what do you mean? How? Well, because like, because thinking about the, like an audiobook or or something. I I don't know. That's the thing that's like I don't I don't know how you would how it could be captured. Because I was thinking that like the the fact that things are written down in some ways kind of defeats the purpose of like remembering it. Because you don't like you, you have the source. It's, I guess it's you know it's like using uh, for me it's like using um, like spell check. Right. It's like I know the word and I can get close, but I don't necessarily have to know exactly how to spell something because spell check most of the time will correct me. Mm-hmm. Um, your back. Yeah, and I feel like with or it's looming there behind you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, which trips me up a lot when I'm typing on Skype because I'll like in, either intentionally try to spell things wrong or it corrects to the wrong thing. I'm like, no, this is this is the word that I was going for. But anyway, mm-hmm. but thinking about like when you were talking about the um, the like poetry at in the beginning, it's like that's like the lyrical aspects of it, the rhyme, um, the like the sort of formal meter. It's like that all lended to it to being remembered um, while it's being like um, passed on to you in some sort of oral or sonic way Mm -hmm. Um, without the benefit of like, Oh, I can just, I can look at this. And I feel like with the advent of um, like really mass produced printing, like printable stuff, the, the focus of, of poetry for me really shifted or it seems like it shifted from being a, like a completely oral, um, like media, art medium to mm-hmm. one that's sort of split and then becoming almost like more important to be on the page than to be heard or to be. Yeah. Uh, that marks the beginning of the documentary trend that is very much still, um, rising now. It's still, uh, um, it's the documentation, um, the witnessing that writing on the page makes possible um, is getting more and more precise. It's getting more and more um, <clears throat> um, pointed and um, critical and um, political, um, you know, yeah. uh, with the confessionalists um, back uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, the, uh, um, um, and with the civil rights movement too, um, parallel, um, they, uh, poets became, uh, able to, um, do this thing, um, to, to, you know, speak to not just the single reader, but, um, the masses about individual experience, um, mm-hmm. as representatives. And that's, that's important. Um, it's uh, it's great to be able to make music and um, you know create pleasure in the reader, but um, with writing on the page, uh, there's this this whole new layer level of um, possibility, which is to um, use the poem as a political vehicle. Yeah, um, and you know. Um, I think that both things um, are necessary, but I think that, uh, you know, the, the poet's role 
as a representative, as a um, medium, or I like this word in Spanish, portavoz, like a spokesperson. Um, I like portavoz because portar means to carry, so like carrying voice. Um, uh, that's that's always been the poet's role, mm-hmm. uh, but now that we have so much dissemination of news, fake news, um, articles, podcasts, um, poetry needs to be this too. It needs to uh, kind of um, you know pitch in and transcend um, the uh, the news culture uh, to the news culture. Um, that we have going right now. Yeah. Huh. It's, so I've, I've really been thinking about like what, um, what the role of an artist is like specifically Mm -hmm. with poetry, but I mean, you can extrapolate that out to just, you know, like if you, if you were making art, Mm -hmm. what is, what is your responsibility to both the art and to like the the culture and the like the circumstances and the context in which you were making that art um i'm one who believes that artists are absolutely responsible for um engaging with and um reflecting the uh moment um the political um social moment um here, my cat's gonna um probably start contributing to our discussion. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, um, I really believe that if you have that talent, um, if you can make beauty, um, with words, then, um, you need to be able to, uh, communicate here. There he is. Um, uh, the present, um, with beauty. Um, I, I criticize, um, Borges and Neruda to an extent um, for uh, not doing more uh, of that in their moment. Um, you know, such such genius, such talent um, that uh, was disseminated wi- widely mm-hmm. and uh, they had the potential to, um, you know, um, persuade convince um, the activist and they didn't. Um, not enough. Um, mm. With you know, great power comes great responsibility, as we know from Batman. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that we absolutely have to use it um, because we are equipped to. And you know, so so would you say that that being a poet, um, like if we if we focus it in on being a poet, do you say that yeah. like the act of being a poet or the act of writing poetry is like it it becomes or it is by necessity or essentially a political act or a political thing to do because as a as a poet and as like in poetry you are engaging with um the sort of like empathetic and emotional truth of like the current like whatever yeah yes um my answer is yes poetry is kind of necessarily political um i think that uh the um aspect of poetry um or writing poetry that requires empathy um makes it social um right we have to always um as poets 
be as sensitive as we can to uh, the implications, um, interpretations of our words, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we always have to be cognizant of the audience, right? So um, just like immediately, inherently, poetry is um, empathetic. Um, and then uh, that turns into an awareness of the other, an awareness of ourselves within our community, not just the poetry community. Mm -hmm. um, even though when we write, we kind of always expect our readership to consist of other people, because that's <laughs> right? Yes. But, but we are people. We're people living in this world, moving through this world, and um, that makes poetry, um, if not political, then at least social, um, which I think is political yeah yeah that's i guess that that's kind of what i was i was getting to that like when um when i went to go see the bread and puppet theater for the first time um i was in the car with kim and on the way back we were talking about um like just what like because they the bread and puppet like touts themselves as as like political theater yeah. um yeah. and we were talking about like what that like if if you if you do political art is that enough or is it that like if you I guess the thing it's like if you if you write like political poetry or make political theater or whatever does that make you an activist or do you are are you an activist and therefore the things that you write will then become it's like it like I guess what direction does it go? And she I think she was she was saying, um, if I can remember the conversation correctly, and um I'm not if I don't put any words in her mouth, that the the idea that like if if all that you were doing is just like making political, like quote unquote political theater, then that's not really enough. Or it's like you're not going far enough that because um, she was saying that like, you know, it's it's easy to say to have like a little five five minute bit or not bit but like a five minute segment about you know like we stand in solidarity um, mm -hmm. to all the refugees have lost their lives crossing the Mediterranean, yeah. um, but like what like what does that actually do like what does that accomplish and it, and I can see like disseminating information or trying to like get people to think about stuff. Like, yes, but if you, again, kind of like we were talking about, it's like, it, as poets, we were kind of, like, I don't, I don't imagine that any poet goes into writing a collection or writing a poem thinking that, oh, the other, the only other people that read this are probably just going to be other poets. But mm -hmm. that, like you said, it's like, that's sort of the, usually the outcome. So, it, like, is it, is it worth it then? It's like, if you're just sort of creating an echo chamber, um, because that was like most of the people who went to go see Bread and Puppet, I think, would already agree with the Bread and Puppet stances. Mm. Um, so at least their their productions in Vermont, it's like, is it is it doing the same sort of thing that potentially their productions when they tour do? Um, but I don't know. That's that's something that I've I've been thinking about and that's come up in the last couple of, of podcast episodes of like what I don't know like what if you do like if you do a particular thing is it enough or is there always like is there always something more that you mm. could that you could 
do or that you could attempt. Yes. Um, yes, there is always something more, but um, we need to, uh, you know, not overextend ourselves. Um, uh, we can't do everything, right? Um, we would never make an income. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's... That is an interesting question, Um, you know, um, so much of what we do um, within our artistic talents is is not enough. Um, We do need to communicate and convince, Um, we need to shake people, Um, but the uh, ideal outcome would be shaking them into action, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Convincing them that like, oh, they, they actually need to get off their asses and go vote, call their representatives, march, you know, volunteer. Um, mm-hmm. These these are the real change makers. That's how you, uh, that's how you get shit done. Um, but, uh, but art, theater, uh, poetry, um, uh, they are um, useful tools. Um, and uh, they reach people in very unique ways. Um, yes. So, uh, so both are, you know, art is necessary, right? Yeah. We need to do it, but then we also need to, um, uh, you know, go to the, you know, ground, you know, um, do real, make real, real change. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the things that like, as, as, as we've been talking about like poetry and as a, like a political act or um, like the act of writing poetry is, is a political thing. Um, I was thinking about, or I was reminded of um, a couple of Bay Dow's memoirs where he talks about, um, I think he has, has at least two of them out, but he talks about like in them going to different post poetry festivals or meeting other poets from around the world since he's, you know, been essentially exiled from China. Um, and, one of the things that I that I noticed that I thought was interested interesting that um, I picked up some other places, but I don't remember off the bat like the other the other sort of corroborating pieces of this information that most of the poets that he encountered in other countries were like social activists as almost like a job mm-hmm. like that's that's what they were engaged with that's what they were doing and it seems yeah. that um, maybe almost anywhere else that you go to in the world, potentially, I don't, I don't, it's a big generalization, but I feel like this might be more than, more than often the case that like being a poet, like you are on the front lines with the protesters with, you know, like you are, you're entrenched with them. You are essentially like the spokesperson of, of these movements. And it's like, you were tapped into and connected into the community and into the people. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And I definitely see that not always being, I mean, I know that's not always the case other places too, but it feels like there's a much larger uh, gulch between poets and like the people in the United States. Mm, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know that. Yes and no. I think that the poets um, are among the people, but the people um, don't trust themselves when they confront poetry. They're, you know, there's a yeah. huge um yeah it's like that you could have um you know like 
major, major figures, like, you know, let's say Naruto, for example, it's like, that he is a, a nationally named, like... Internet. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. That, like, you, you could go most places and mention Naruto, and people, like, even people who are not poets who know who you're talking about. And then, <laughs> like, in the United States, it seems that... Um, that, like, there, there are poets that I think that are, you know, like, as famous as you can get as poets, mm-hmm. contemporary, yeah. um, that I've talked to other poets about, and they're like, I don't know who that is. I'm like, how, like, yeah. and it, I, I not, it seems that in other cultures, poetry has a, has a place in, like, a, a comparable place in, yeah. in, like, the arts that, like, visual arts or music or some, some other, it's like, it's, it's not looked at, at as this sort of, um, I don't know, like, triviality or almost waste of time, that it seems that in most of the United States, or most of the people that I've encountered in the United States who are not, like, in the literary community or not, at least artists, view poetry as, like, oh, you know, that's quaint. I think, I suspect that um, this phenomenon has to do with the um, allocation of poetry to universities and, and, um, yeah, it's, it's been kind of like boxed up and, um, put into just curriculum, uh, curricula, uh, in the U S where, um, that kind of intellectualism, um, it's part of what scares, the people about poetry um like you can't be a poet unless you've got degrees right, right. you can't yeah oh you don't have an mfa oh <laughs> yeah or yeah. like oh you don't have you know like three like three books published by a well-known yeah. university uh, press. <laughs> yeah like a you know well-known publisher um yeah I, I really like that's something that i've noticed that that in in the United States, more often than not, like the the only exposure that people have to poetry is in the academic world, and then even within that, there's not like. I feel like it's so often presented as a sort of prescriptive thing that you have to analyze and you have to dissect and you have to like. There's I've been in very very few poetry classes, and I was actually I I was at a, a book fest all last weekend trying to sling books, yeah. and um, there was a uh, design intern from one of the presses that I, like the other press at the table. And we were like, she was in, she's currently working through the program that I graduated from. And we were just kind of talking and um, she's a fiction writer, but she's always wanted to take a poetry class. And I was trying to get her to take a class with, with a teacher there that I really love. And I was like, I think Kendra's class was really maybe one of the only times that poetry was presented in such a way that like, it dealt with your response to it, like what it made you feel. Mm. Um, and that's how we, and like, and we would, we would critique and we would analyze poems, but it would always start with like, where is it? Where does it feel on fire to you? Like where, where does it hit? Where does it, where does it make you feel like you got socked in the stomach? Yeah. And then after that, it's like, why? And yeah. I feel like that, that relationship to poetry, instead of looking at it and analyzing it, it's like, you know, like the yeah. rhyme scheme or the like patterning or figuring out the themes or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's, it seems that most of the time that I dealt with poetry, it's you dissect it as you would like a story that there's certain 
Yeah. There's certain things that have to be here and you have to analyze and you have to figure this out instead of like, it's not, it's not, most poetry is not trying to tell you a story. It's trying to make you like feel something. And then from that point you could say like, oh, this was an effective use of this particular word or like Mm -hmm. this, this shocked me because I was not expecting this. And that opened up this section of the poem of like, oh, this is the whole, the whole point of, I mean, Hypothetically, let's say you're talking about a cicada. You're watching like a cicada come out of its its shell or whatever, and there's a moment in the poem that the cicada comes out, and the poet uses a word that's unexpected and is yeah. shocking, or is just like it's just that popping, like oh shit, that's like there's a you know there's yeah a, con- yeah there's yeah. a continuity between the language and the effect that it has, and I I yeah. feel like you really can't. It would be so much. It's so much more difficult to get to that point if you don't start from like, how do how does this affect me when I'm reading it? Yeah, um, that's my favorite lesson to teach my students, and I usually have to say it over and over again, right? Um, like, stop worrying about what this is supposed or what you think it's supposed to mean, or what you're afraid you can't access um, logically. Just simply how does it make you feel yeah and that's that's something that like the most often response that i get to people who don't read poetry and the reason and if i ask them why they don't and the most often you the usual response that i get is that i don't understand it yes and like that's mm-hmm. hands down mm-hmm. yeah and it's like i can definitely understand that because i've read some fairly dense kind of inscrutable poems it's like i don't you know, I don't understand what the hell is happening here, but I think, (laughs) yeah, I I think that like it being poetry being presented in the way that it is presented, like you said, it's like, it's the, the point of reading a poem is to understand what it means or Mm -hmm. is to understand. Yeah. And like, that's not typically, that's not what poems do. And even for poems that like, you don't understand, I'm thinking like Gertrude Stein's stuff. That's Mm -hmm. like really, really battles against being understood in a like a coherent narrative way or Mm -hmm. like Cummings for example it's like he's all these you know like the parentheses that don't lead anywhere all this shit that's like these language that's stacked up it's like that's the point of it is not to understand it the point of it is like what does this make you feel like what does this do to you on the inside yeah um Emotional understanding. Yes, which I think in general, at least for um, a good swath of like the masculine population in the United States is not it's like there's no real work on emotional development and understanding or intelligence of like, yeah. oh, this is what I feel. This is what this does. And I can I may not be able to put a name to it, but I can mm-hmm. describe like the texture of like, oh, yeah, this is that's that's it. That's, you know, that's yeah. the feeling. So I'm allowed to feel, I'm encouraged to feel. Yes, 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 yes. Um, (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. And that's like, I think, I feel like this came up in the last, the last episode, this idea that like, poetry is a sort of, um, it's like, it's an un, like an unkempt or just sort of like a disheveledness of emotion that's often sort of like, oh, we don't, like, if you're going to feel it, it has to be this, this like neat little package of, mm-hmm. you know, one of like six things you can, you're allowed to feel this, but anything other than those things, yeah, you can't, you can't do it. Um, and I, I feel like 
more often than not, like poetry for people, like you know, people who who belittle poetry, it's usually because like, oh, it's this this like this um, over the overindulgence of or this decadence of yeah. emotion, um, or this like you know the sentimentality yeah. or this sort of yeah. just like mm-hmm. it just like a um, yeah. Whenever people say that, I, there's this one. Um, I think it's a Rococo painting where it's like, it's the woman on the swing and the garden, everything's like lush and just like curly Mm -hmm. cue. And it's just like, it's too, it's too much. Um, I feel like that's what people, other people think about poetry is. It's like, that's, you know, it's like, mm, I mean, yeah, it can be, but that's not, that's not the most effective. That's not the poetry that's going to make you feel shit and feel deeply about stuff. Um, but speaking of all of this, when did poetry first happen for you? I was given a collection by uh, Khalid Gibran, the Lebanese poet, very um, in fashion in the 60s. Um, <clears throat> I actually found out this summer um, in looking into um, you know, the, the origins of my my poeticity um, <laughs> uh, I, I found out that um, I knew this my name Julia is uh, it comes from uh, John Lennon's mother um, and you know, the Beatles song Julia has lyrics from Khalid Gibran um, of poetry and uh, wow. I assumed that um, my uncle who gave me um, these these poetry books knew that about um, the song, about my name, and uh, so was giving me this really thoughtful present um, um, by, by giving me these collections. But he, he is the one who made me realize that there's poetry. Um, and honestly, um, didn't read them, um, not fully, um, not until later. Uh, you know, much later in college. Um, uh, but the the mere presence of those books, the mere gift of them, um, you know, also because I really respected my uncle. Um, you know, um, he's very cultured, and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be that too. Um, <clears throat> just the fact of the, the, the poems. Um, turned something on in me. And when I would go to write a diary entry about some experience, um, you know, as a, as an elementary school child, it would come out in verse. Um, I think that, uh, that's also, it has to do with, um, my own difficulty in saying the thing, um, in an admission. And so verse was a way to kind of keep the secret from myself to, uh, right. Um, in shaping words and in selecting and choosing few words to process, you know, whatever little thing had happened to me, it was a way of also, um, you know, uh, protecting myself or, um, preserving the, um, the real hit of it, you know, the, the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes sense if my words came together there. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's, which is a weird sort of like, I never really thought about poetry as like almost, or could be used as like self-obfuscation. 
And I, well, I actually like I, I feel like I probably employed that a whole lot when I was younger as but more of a like I'm trying to be clever in mm. describing yeah. something that's like way, yeah. you know, spin like two or three long lines describing something that I could have just easily said and like yeah. there's, there's a light there and it looks like this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for me, it's also it's not just self obfuscation which is a fantastic term for it um <laughs> thank you <laughs> but it's also um uh, a manifestation of cleverness of my sense of humor you know i like making jokes um i like play wordplay you know double triple meanings um and just because i enjoy puzzles um mm -hmm. that gets very irritating for readers sure um <laughs> i've i trained well, uh, I guess trained myself out of it, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. Um, but I, you know, came to realize that I do need to give my readers some kind of access, you know, some kind of ground to stand on. Um, and uh, with the encouragement or uh, beratement <laughs> that I received from um, workshops and professors, colleagues, um, I've become much more able to be clear, not always. Um, the thing that really did it for me was translating um, conversational uh. political poetry and, you know, that voice becomes a part of my voice. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I can hear Paco Rondo speaking through me sometimes. Um, you know, I, I, I do channel him and I've learned uh, how to write like him by writing him, you know? Right. I, I, I was him. Yeah. They translated him. Um, that's that's another plug that I can do. That book is now under contract, so next year it should be coming out. Fuel and Fire: Selected Poems of Francisco Rondo, 1956 to 1976, from the Alagos Press in New York, New Orleans. Oh, nice! Yeah. So it was Francisco. What was his last name? Urondo, U-R-O-N-D-O. -O. Cool. I'm definitely putting that in the, in the description. So when when did you start, maybe not in earnest is the right term, but like when did you start writing poetry, recognizing it's like this is something that I, I actively want to pursue? High school. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, did you have like a creative writing class that you were plugged into or was just mm -hmm. sort of like it just – it just happened one day. My um, senior year, I think, yeah, probably senior year English teacher um, made it a point to bring poetry into the classroom. And um, she actually uh, led me to my MFA um, because she knew the professor. Or no, no, she did not. That's two steps in the future. She led me to um, take poetry classes um, in my BA with a friend of hers who is David Rivard and, you know, foundational mm -hmm. mentor for me. Um, you know, uh, we're still, we run into each other in conferences. We're still, you know, very fond of each other. Um, lots of respect there. Um, and, uh, then, then David led me to Maryland because he was friends, is friends with Michael Collier there. Um, so, yeah, network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
nice, nice, really lucky um, early network, early encouragement yeah. um, to engage with poetry. Have so aside from the being a little more clear and a little more direct, mm-hmm. um, have there been other sort of major shifts in your poetry? Yes, back to the cryptic, actually, um, <laughs> which I'm so pleased with. Um, <laughs> so the, I, the the sleepwalk poems that you shared at the Studio mm-hmm. Center, were those more in the, like, heading back to cryptic? Yeah, heading back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, did, uh, I did feel like that was um, an okay moment to um, be a little bit more um, internal, a little more pensive, a little more lyrical, because the fact of it is so simple, right? Somebody slept walk into my room mm-hmm. naked and got into bed with me. <laughs> um, and, and that wildness, um, you know, I need to establish the, you know, that narrative fact early in the series, just so people know what I'm talking about, but then I can depart, then I can kind oh, of... Yeah ruminate um and um extrapolate on the uh you know all of the potentials um you know all all that that meant to me that that it could have meant to her um you know the provenances um and since then i have um written my first creative nonfiction piece um it is quite lyrical. Um, it's it's quite fragmented. It um, appears in poem-like sections, <laughs> but it's four pages of um, prose sentences um, that uh, are decidedly, for me, um, the most prose-like um, productions I've ever um, <clears throat> I've ever done, um, I've ever attempted. Um, there was just so much experience. Um, there was just so many interesting things that happened to me. Um, so they're, they're about, um, things that, um, I've encountered or, or experienced down in Southwest Texas. Um, so like the newness of the place, um, the terrain, the, mm-hmm. Uh, wildness of the things that happened there. Um, um, I undertake discussions of the border um, of um, um, heterosexual relationships, um, working women, um, and adobes. Um, the uh, bu uh, and the poem. Oh, I just called it. It's okay. Any and everything can be a poem. It's fine. You in the piece um, is a lover um, who is a Mexican immigrant and U.S. citizen, um, and he makes adobes. And uh, I've also just been introduced to all of the politics and, uh, you know, um, uh, radical activism of adobes because they're so... uh, economical they're so um great at preserving heat or cold when necessary um mm-hmm. and it's literally just building up from dirt you know um making these structures rise from earth 
uh, and they're beautiful and they can be simple. They can be very intricate too. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, so that, that all of the, like that Adobe worlds, the Southwest Texas world, um, and the things that I experienced with this lover of mine, um, and border patrol, um, and uh, meeting his his mentor, who's a woman who's a seventy or eighty year old woman who still is in construction. She still um, gets up on scaffolding. <laughs> She's amazing. Oh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, so all of that just was like uh, it needed to be dumped together. I don't like the negative implications of dumped. It just needed to be splayed out and. Um, you know, kind of like rapid fire emitted and it came out in prose. Hmm. Poetic prose. <laughs> I feel like that's, um, I don't know. That's always, it's always really interesting for me for that, the, like the, the forms and the styles that sort of bleed through, uh, fiction, nonfiction and poetry, you know, like mm. prose poems or flash pieces or super, mm. super lyrical essays. Yeah. Um, or like most of the shit that Ann Carson does, that's like I don't. It's it's aside from when when it's explicitly poetry, it's like I don't know what the hell to call any of the shit that she writes. Yeah, because <laughs> it's it's like it's. Um, but what like, I'm, I love the fact that there is. Um, I don't know. Like on some days, I love the fact that there's this distinction that we have these names for stuff. It's like this is you know this is a nonfiction piece. Um, because it is written in like prose sentences, but it is hyper, hyper lyric. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, if you were just reading it could potentially be read at like, as you would read other poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's other days like that's, I love the intricateness of that, of that. Mm -hmm. And there are other days it's just like, it's just fucking, it's like, it's art. Who gives a shit? What the hell you call it? You know, it's like, and I understand for like marketing or for, I don't know, like narrowing in on your audience of who would, in, who would want to read this or thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like other days it's just like, and I, I was thinking a lot about this when I was tabling at the book fest mm. that like people would come up. Um, Cause I've done, my press has done almost exclusively poetry except for the newest piece, which is the best description that I have for it is experimental collaborative nonfiction. Yeah. Um, and mm. it's like, yeah, that is, it's like, that's kind of what it is, but that doesn't really tell you. And then, it, then I have to be like, well, it, it's, it's curated from, you know, like all these things and it's, it's set up like it's a long dialogue and all this stuff. And it's like, it feels like, it feels like it could be just a play kind of, but it's not, mm. it's, that's like, just, just read it, just fucking read it. And then you'll know what it is instead of, yeah. you know, <laughs> having all these primers of like, oh, these poems are about this. These right. poems are about this. Yeah. It's like just, like just fucking, just read it. Just yeah. go into it, and I. Uh, yeah, I that's know. another uh, to get back to your question about like uh, how um, I talk about poetry and how people respond to my um, the fact of my being a poet out in the world. Uh, one of the first questions is, so what do you write about uh, <laughs> for a poet or for you know for any writer? It's so subjective. It's so it, it's so various mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's never just one thing and if it's just one thing then it's probably not worth reading yeah <laughs> or you know 
for the experience of it, not reading. Um, you know, you could get certainly lots out of, uh, what is it? Um, like that computer language for dummies. Or oh. <laughs> or, yeah, I, yeah, that's, I have most of the people, well, I guess like most of the recent people that I've told that I'm a poet to are other writers. So I think that there's that sort of, ingrained like oh i'm not going to ask you the questions that normal people would ask because you know mm-hmm. other uh, artists get it musicians get it yeah yeah usually it's like if somebody um i don't know it's like if somebody it says that they're a poet um i would like usually my first question after that or like well, who who are you reading right now or like what are you working on right now not so much like well what what do you what do you typically write about in your day to day being a poet? It's like I don't know, man. I like I saw a bunch of sparrows in a garden and I wrote a haiku about it. It's like is yeah. that is that what you want to hear? Is that going to make you happy or like understand what I do as an art? Um, yeah, but it's 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 really like getting back to the whole like crypticness and more, I guess, uncrypticness. Because there's there's that there's that boundary between being like cryptic and being straightforward, and then there's all this stuff in between of like it's like, eh. but um, I have found myself as a poet being much much um, more plain spoken to an extent. I guess more conversational, not necessarily plain spoken, mm-hmm. but um, much more forthcoming or at least kind of straightforward with the stuff that I'm writing about. Like I, I try to, I try to write it in a, like an appealing way, or I try to describe it in such a way that it, it feels true or it feels authentic. Um, regardless of like whether or not that's actually, um, I don't know. I'm cause I can, I can, I've definitely described things in such a way that it's like, it's not super clear what exactly what it is that I'm talking about, but in reading it, you kind of know, like, you know, there's some, that's, that's kind of what I go after. There's some part of you that's like, even if you don't get it yeah. comp- like comprehendingly, there's some part of in, your intuition. that's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I, yeah, it makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I think, I think I'm much more, and this is probably a direct, now that I'm thinking about it, this, is probably a direct offshoot of, like, the, all the years that I've been reading haiku. Yeah. Um, yeah. The idea of, like, drilling down into the essence of something. That I, that's what I'm I'm trying to get when I when mm-hmm. I write about, um, you know, like, all, all the Vermont poems and stuff, like, describing the river, all the different facets of the river. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want it to be true in this moment. Like, what it, what is this? Yeah. How is how is this thing existing in this particular moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like just finding finding the descriptive lab- language to cobble together. It's like this is what this is like. This may not be what it actually is, but this is what it is in an emotional truth sort mm-hmm. of a way, which for me is much more important than like factual truth. Yeah, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um so i was i've been mean i've been curious about this because i don't think that this ever i don't know if this ever came up when we were talking in vermont but do you do other art stuff besides poetry i mean you've but aside from 
writing? Are there other art mediums that you're actively engaged in? Unfortunately, no. Um, I am not engaged in other artistic practices. I um, I have instruments. Um, really. <laughs> Uh, I don't play. Um, <laughs> so you just you just have them. Yeah, they look cool. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I used to I used to paint. I used to watercolor in college, um, and I did write a poem about it once. Um, that uh, writing with. writing about the process of watercoloring, or writing a poem yes. specifically about a particular piece that you painted. No, about the process. Okay. Um, and I. Uh, you know, I like in terms of like hobbies, other hobbies. I you know I was very into athletics, um, soccer, rowing, basketball. Um, I've written a rowing poem, but it was about being in like a tiny aluminum rowboat and not one of those. Not like the crew rowboat. Boats, no. Um, and I've never written a soccer poem. Um, I've kind of always been waiting to, um, you know, like this this month will I write one? You know, um, <laughs> it's always at the back of my mind um, because soccer was such a huge part of my life for twelve years. Um, oh wow! <clears throat> yeah, um, like really, like year round, um, consistent part of my life, and um, you know. Uh, but it hasn't made it into poems yet, and it's curious to me um, because there's so much beauty to athletic movement, just like body-wise, team-wise, you know, plays, like in basketball, oh my God, the the plays that unravel, um, you know, the movement of the ball and the people back and forth, um, uh, that... You know, there's there's there are poems there, but I don't know why. Um, maybe because they are more felt experiences. You know, they're mm. so physical. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what I would use them to say. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's weird to be split for me between like poetry and, and music because there's certain things that I, I can do in poetry or that I try to do in poetry that I feel like I can sometimes do better with music mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so like if like watching a like a basketball like I'm like I'm imagining like I could I could probably write some pretty kick-ass music watching like a pickup basketball game like that yeah. would, that would be that would be easy for me mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. trying to write a poem about it I think would be unbelievably challenging and difficult yeah um which actually this so i I have a question about translation for you but Mm -hmm. before we get to that um i have always whenever i write poetry it feels like i am translating an experience um whereas when i write music and i've talked about this on the podcast before probably many, 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 many times. Um, when I, when I write music, I feel like I can like directly transpose whatever it is that I felt into the piece. Whereas when I'm, when I'm, when I do a a poem, it feels like that it undergoes some sort of internal translation. It's like, it's, it never, it's never exactly what I mean to say, or it's never, it's never the complete thing. 
Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like with with your translation practice, like how how do you approach it? Because I've I've read some things that there's there are a couple of different kind of like the major ways to translate, like either be mm-hmm. as like as faithful literally as possible to do sort of like a to interpret it as if like how would this make the most sense in English versus and then for other ones it's like almost a complete reassemblage or a restructuring of the like you're essentially like writing a new poem yeah out of out of the source poem and I'm yeah. I'm interested that do you do you have like a this is my talking about the poetry trend in translation yeah. was my segue to this um yeah. do you have like a a, a set poetic i mean a, a set translation style that you do or is it dependent upon like what you are like the whatever the source material that you are translating does that i'm assuming that probably dictates um like how you translate it um not necessarily i always always strive to um make the poems sound good um you know i just love that play um i love uh allowing my ear to um wonder um because i think that that will become um it will allow the poem to become um enjoyable um and accessible in that kind of um pleasing way by a reader um i um will adjust that level of play and musicality according to um, what I hear in the original. You know, some are less sonorous. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I always uh, attempt to feel the original. Um, that's the way to uh, render um a successful translation, um, uh, not just understanding what's happening, but, um, you know, um, sensing the mood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Robert Lowell said that um, conveying the tone is the most important thing. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of piggyback on that um, by saying that, like, the mood um, is what I strive for. But it really, it has to be something that I feel um, that... Uh, this translation, um, I have to identify it um, and kind of like live with it after reading the original, and then reproduce it, um, tap into it um, <clears throat> on the, the page in English. Do you feel like translation works out the same? So when when I write, I feel like I'm working out very different. Like, it's a very different process, very different, uh, let's say, internal muscles than when I revise. When you translate, do you feel like it works out the same types of stuff that you feel when you are composing new poems? Or is it closer to, like, a revisional thing? Or is it somewhere in between? Or is it totally un- unrelated? Um, it's, it's something very different um, than producing my own original. There's such uh, a rush, there's such an exhilaration um, upon realizing that, oh, I have a poem here that I just, <laughs> I just, I just burst that. Like that came from me and only from me. Um, mm-hmm. With translation, um, the poem's already done. It's already um, um, polished, published usually. Um, 
And I, uh, what I get out of that um, is um, that kind of like puzzle completion satisfaction. Like, oh, like neat. I made all of that work. Yeah. Okay. But then you get the the real sense of joy of um, having um, continued the life of this other poem. Um, mm-hmm. Get to champion this other poet, bring them into um, a new community, a new awareness. When would you prefer to read um, a translation that is just? Like, just the English translation, or would you prefer to see it in, like, the bilingual sort of, like, split text? I love the bilingual. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's it's fun. Um, it does invite um, criticism on my part, you know? Like, if I read somebody else's English translation, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have chosen that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, yeah. Um, there's there's a double um, admiration that I get to have. Hmm. And so, speaking, I guess, of, on the presentation of, of poetry, what what is your ideal way that you would want your own poetry to be experienced or to be encountered? Mm. Might be a better word. I don't know. I... Uh want my reader to be sitting alone on his or their couch at night, um, not sleepy, uh, but um, calm and open and uh, alone. (laughs) You know, not like we we usually read sitting next to a group of people. but um, yeah, my my poems require quietness because they are so quiet themselves. I'm for the, for Julie can see it because we're skyping right now. But for my for the listeners out there, I was shaking my head vigorously in agreement. Um, <laughs> it's true, he was. <laughs> um, because I feel I feel the exact same way, which is I've always. I've always struggled with giving readings because that's, that feels so antithetical to how Mm. um, like my intent behind the poem. And then just like, they're not, they're not big, loud poems. They're like, they're quiet things that like, I don't, I don't want to be speaking this big, this big, like a quiet thing and a big trying to fill up a room. It's like, I'd rather just like give it to you and just go like, go away somewhere and read it. And then, then come back and tell me what you think. See, I, I really enjoy giving readings because um, I'm going to kind of qualify my answer. Um, even though my poems are so quiet, um, they asked to be heard. Ah, uh, okay. That was, I was, that was my next question for you. But so you, you, your poems are, are, they exist on the page, but they want to, do you feel like they prefer to exist in a, like a sonic space? No, um, they're very much um, designed for the page. Um, okay. um, I, I love giving readings because I, um, I get to deliver that strength and conviction and earnestness. Um, 
and uh, you heard me read in Vermont, um, you know, there's there's an urgency that I have um, that I get to manifest when I'm reading or performing in front of an audience. Okay. I, I find um, really necessary um, as an element to the poems, but um, really rewarding for me, too. But not primary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's always that's always a really interesting. I know that I've used that that word a lot in this podcast and just in general. But <laughs> it is it is interesting for me. It, it's of great interest to me to ask other poets like how they want um, yeah. their stuff to be, or their their poetry to be encountered. Because I feel like there's, we really only have kind of like two main avenues for that, at least in like contemporary, like poetry life in the United States. It's either you got a book, yeah, or reading, mm-hmm. um, and like spoken word kind of exists as it's as it's as a, in a like a, maybe Venn diagram space of a reading because mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. it's a very, um, it's like it's a oral sonic experience but it, mm-hmm. i feel like there's there's a much high there's a much greater performative aspect to spoken word or to um of course it was designed to be heard yeah um and i feel like there's there's so much poetry that could benefit from not being presented in one of those two ways but i don't know if people have really figured out a good way of like this is like this is this is the way that you that you do it because mm. um, like I'm I'm very similar with um, my ideal uh, my ideal encounter that other people will have with my poetry is it's like you you're by yourself you know somewhere that isn't like an intimate space for you mm-hmm. um, and you are just you're just there with the poems and you're engaging with them and you're sitting with them mm-hmm. um, for however long that takes you on like, you know, regardless of, of where you are, it's like, I just, that, like that solitude and quiet, I think are the, 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 the um, the two almost necessities for my poems. Yeah. Um, and that's really tough to, which like, it's tough because it's almost like a one-on-one sort of a thing, which is the, the engagement that I want to have, but it's, that's really difficult to get that when you're out in the world and you're like, Oh, I have books. So I'm going to target one person individually instead of, you know, like I'm going to try to get yeah. like a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, there's, there's, there's a way I, I'm, <laughs> I'm convinced that there is a way that I can, I can have my poet, like, so the Vermont poems, I don't, I, I may have talked a little bit about this in the podcast, but, um, so I, you know, as as most of you know, I don't write to be read. But the poems that I worked on in Vermont seem like they want to be heard out loud, which is a very weird and new experience for me. Like I don't, like I can actually give readings with these poems because they want to exist in this space, which is a total, mm-hmm. this is a very new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm convinced that there is a way that I can get my other poems to exist in a public space but i have not yet figured it out and it's maddening Mm -hmm. to me because it's like i want to i want to engage with people with these things but i don't Mm -hmm. know how to how to do it but Mm -hmm. um so i think i got three more questions for you and then we can we can bundle this up um first question um 
this is something that's been on my on my question list that I don't think I've asked. I don't know if I've asked anybody, but I'm gonna I'm gonna start putting it into the rotation of something that I I for sure ask. Where do you feel the youngest currently in mm-hmm. your poetry? The youngest in my poetry. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, I feel like um, I'm gonna. I think that I'm gonna interpret this. Um, you can interpret it. Like okay. if, if it's a if it's a process if it's like a, a being like widely read thing just any any anything that touches your poetry that's part of that you would incorporate into your your process or into your your writing life where do yeah. you feel the the youngest in um or I about? Feel, uh like I have a lot of growth to do in lengthening my poems still um I okay. have uh, noticed. Some that I really enjoy that uh, stop short. Um, many that I really enjoy stop short, um, and I still haven't quite figured out um, well how to extend them, how to um, you know uh, balloon them um, or balloon them <laughs> um, in a productive way. Um, I. I'm probably just a little bit too shy um, about uh, continuing because, you know, it sounds, they sound good already. Um, and I want them to be done. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. Would you, I'm assuming that that, to, that for you would be like a, a, a poem by poem thing that like, mm-hmm. if, if the poem feels like itself, that it itself wants to be longer than you would. Yeah. You yes. would begin to to try to add some stuff to it. Yeah. Okay. Does is that like this is I guess a, a tertiary question. Um when you revise, is that like do you start with or I guess where where is your starting point for your revisions? Um hmm. I um usually start by uh clarifying. Um, I go back in and I, I pick out some words that uh, may sound great, um, but that are darlings I need to kill. <laughs> and, uh, so when you for stuff like that, like if there's if there's a line or there's a particular word that's like this is I love this, but it mm-hmm. doesn't work for the poem. Do you would you like take it out and put it someplace? Is like this can be used for another poem, or do you just like do you just delete it and you just move on? Murdered, destroyed, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, um, sometimes these uh, these original poems uh, ring so loudly in my head that I have to go back and put some of those words in um, because if I didn't, then it would be you know stuck in my head forever. Born. <laughs> okay. Um, second question which is a question that I try to ask everybody. Um, if you have the vocabulary for it, what does your internal landscape look like? Or feel like, or exist as, however however that happens for you? Um, <clears throat> well, it, it changes, right? Ooh, um, nice. I have not, I've not had a whole lot of people whose ones are in flux on the podcast. That's, it's always, it's like mine's, mine's very static. There's yeah. like minute changes, but the what it is doesn't change. So it's it's exciting for me when people are like, oh yeah, it just 
is it well i guess continue i i had some questions but i have a feeling you'll probably answer them as you you um, describe it they're not um proliferous but um they they will alternate alternate between um something like a dark wooded forest or um Mm. the new england seashore or uh pacific northwest mountainside and now in the rotation is southwestern desert um where um i feel uh you know something very um tangible and ephemeral um that uh um, leads me to creativity um to a kind of um um, perspective on how I'm going to approach my day, um, you know, different atmospheres from each of them. Do you, is there, is, do they change it with any sort of like regular or regimented process or is it just sort of like, mm-hmm. it'll be one thing for a while and then it'll be, it'll be something else? Yeah, it'll be one thing for a while and it'll change, um, yeah, phases. Do you... This might be a, this might be too esoteric of a question, but have you noticed that there are certain like certain types of of poetry or or certain types of poems that you will write based upon like what what internal landscape is currently in the rotation, or do you find that like yeah. you can only write when there's a particular landscape that's there, and the other ones aren't super conducive to that? Um. So when I'm in my seaside um landscape i feel um nostalgic and longing um when i'm in my dark forest i feel devious (laughs) Uh, i feel like uh there's um a lot of productive slippage that can happen you know under that cover Mm -hmm. um a lot of probing too um risk taking um the uh, the hillside, the mountain sign, rather, mountainside is uh, a state of um, yearning um, that's not longing. Um, it's it's more uh, um, specific and urgent um, and troubled. Um, so uh, yeah, poems come from them. Um, you know, several poems um, kind of. Uh, dance through and um, around the landscapes that I am feeling. Hmm. I think that it would be like knowing this um, in, you know, many, many years into the future when you have like a a collected works (laughs) anthology that's out. um, I'm going (laughs) to buy that and I'm going to go through and see if I can pinpoint like which poems come from which which landscapes. Well, maybe I should organize the book based on I mean that would be that would be beneficial for my purposes, but I don't know if that would be like the most uh, expedient way to organize a right. a collection. Yeah, um, maybe you <laughs> on point. That's that's really that's wild to me that like because like I said like mine's static. There mm-hmm. are like two things that will occasionally show up in the landscape, but the landscape itself does not change. Yeah. Um, but I've definitely recognized that, like, most of my, um, pretty much, I guess, like, since my poetry really kind of shifted into 
I guess like the most current state of it. Um, like in every poem of mine that I've that I've read, there's this little bit of like like that's the landscape. There's some there's some aspect of it, and, and for that for me because of that for me they all sort of like they all have the same color mm-hmm. or in like in the palette of, of the the color palette or the tone palette or whatever it is for the poem mm-hmm. there was always like the particular color of like the badlands prairie mm-hmm. whatever whatever internally that color or that tone is for me it's like it's always yeah. in the palette it's always there yeah. you're looking at like the pantone or whatever it's always in that mm-hmm. mixture um you probably have a um, sure, more sure sense of self than I do. This is why you're just studying. <laughs> I guess I don't know. There's, there's a definite like, st- like stillness or stability or just sort of like, um, not unflappableness, but that's sort of like it's just like mostly even or like neutral. It's yeah. just sort of like. You know, there's little bumps, maybe little hills, but it's for generally it's just like. Yeah, I sense that from you, knowing you. And that's like, there's so so many other aspects of myself that I feel like can be kind of tied to the to the internal landscape, and that that was really sort of um, I don't know if I ever explained this, but that was um, in in podcast world mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that like the main that for me because like I see the manifestation of like my internal landscape in so much other aspects, so many other aspects of my life Mm -hmm. um, that it feels like this is a really central thing to me. It's like, it's it's about as close as you could get as to my core, if it's not actually the core of me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was intriguing to me to ask other people to be like, well, Mm -hmm. like there are definite things that I've picked up or it's sort of intuitive about intuited about you. And I'm curious if like, one, if you can describe your landscape, and two, if that, mm-hmm. like, whatever it is that you come up as a land of up for as a landscape, um, or that you recognize as, as your own internal space, if that matches with the things that I've intuited, mm-hmm. um, or if it plays like as a significant of a role in your life or in your mm-hmm. like your emotional existence mm-hmm. or you know yeah. uh, topology as mine does, mm-hmm. um, and it's weird that it's like. It's 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 also um, neat to ask people that have never thought about it before because like mm-hmm. I've like I've been sitting in mine for the better part of like f- like four or five years. It's like I've recognized and it's like yep, that's it, that's what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I should note or have you note that um, I thought about the answer to the question because you... Right, yes, but, like, before... uh, But I I, felt, you know, I just haven't put it into words. Right, and there are, like, other other Mm -hmm. people that I've asked this have been in your situation. It's like that there's this... There's this thing that they've recognized inside of themselves that they didn't have the, like, the... the, They weren't... Like, they didn't have the the word or the vocabulary or, like, the word bank or whatever to be like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is... This is what this is. But there are other people that I've talked to who have never thought about it before in their life um, Mm -hmm. until I like they see the question on the little question sheet Mm -hmm. and they're like I hmm that's a hmm um but yeah I don't know it's just it's it's a it's of um it's one of the things that I think that I'm most curious about people Mm -hmm. um and it's something that like I'm I wonder 
I feel like artists would, are probably in a better place to have an answer for that because they, I imagine that they spend more time. I imagine that more artists more often than not would spend more time internally or just sort of like trying to figure shit out inside (laughs) than a lot of other people. Um, But like, I don't know what my dad's is. I've never asked him this. And it's like, that's, that's an intriguing thing for me. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's always, it's a beautiful question to ask people because it really, um, if they're able to answer, then it really connects you. Um, it's, it's a vulnerable admission or recognition. Yeah. And it's, it's always, I don't know, sort of like, like pride, I guess pride is involved in this, but it's always really rewarding for me. That's like when somebody describes their landscape and it's, it matches like almost point for point up for things that I've like I've thought about them. It's like, yes. (laughs) Um, and as is traditional, um, for the podcast, my last question is, is there anything about anything that you feel like asking me? I'm curious. Um, so you're very active, um, in, in different ways, um, with poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, you have lots of things going on. Um, which of them produces the greatest response? Like people actually vocalizing um, some feedback to you. Um, I think (laughs) um, your cat is is impatient for my answer. Um, I think probably my press gives me the most the most direct response um because it's it's usually the thing that i'm the most um like the most social or the most forward with or it's it's the easiest thing that um it's the easiest thing of like of the things that i do with poetry that has like or it has the most public face i guess yeah um which in kind of a roundabout way allows me to like give my poetry to people. Cause I like, I've not been published in a long, long time. Yeah. Um, but I actually like, um, a co or a new coworker of mine, um, asked to, to buy a, um, a collection, like my, my first collection, my first chat book. Um, and I woke up this morning from a, to a text from her, um, where she was just like gushing about it. I was like, Oh, this is, this is a really wonderful thing. Um, but yeah, it's usually, I think that the press is probably the most, the thing that I, that I get the most direct response from because it's usually like, I'm the, the times that I'm showcasing the press will be at like book festivals or art fairs or art markets or whatever. So like I am standing there with a whole bunch of books that like people are going to come up to and engage with. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's usually like, yeah. usually people will, will comment on like the, the, the texture of the paper because I, I try to like, um, yeah. for the, the books that I can't, um, that the, the printing company that I use doesn't have like the right paper for, I will, I print that stuff myself, but it has, yeah. it has like a nice kind of tooth to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like, people will, will usually come up and start like thumbing through and, or at least like feeling like experiencing the books tactilely. Um, lots of people have commented that they like the, the design of them. 
um, a lot, I think a lot of people have called them, have said that they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like after, after those sort of initial responses, like, Oh, this feels good. Like, Oh, this looks good. And Oh, this feels good in my hands. And mm-hmm. sometimes people will like, if they take the time there to engage with the poetry on the spot, then they'll like comment on that. But, um, yeah, well, yeah, it, it does require quiet and time. Yeah, there's actually, there's one woman that was thumbing through my uh, Nebraska chat book. And, like, I was trying to talk to her about it, but she was just so, so distracted by mm-hmm. the poetry that she was reading that she was ignoring me. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. Yes, and I was like, after after a little bit of, like, trying to talk to her, I was just like, I'm just going to shut up and just let, <laughs> like, let her read. Um, but... Yeah, it's, uh, that's like I would like to 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 do readings like, and I think that that's um, you know most people use readings to get sort of a public or direct engagement with other of, with other people yeah. uh, to their poetry mm-hmm. um, or with their poetry. But I tend to not do readings, um, right? And which again kind of circles back to it's like they're trying to figure out a way that I can present, that I can cultivate the experience of being alone with my poetry in a public mm-hmm. setting. Yeah. Um, and I think music will be involved in it in some way, but I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure how. Um, but. And Sexton and her kind, Michael Zuloff and his kind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like. Because I think what I would really love to do is just have like little simple like pamphlet stitched um, copies of let's say let's say I'm going to the reading I make fifty of these things yeah. I, just, I just hand them out to people and like you know they're in the in these things are like maybe eight maybe at most ten poems um, and then just during my my allotted time to read I would just like play music or I would have a a, a composition or something that mm-hmm. I've curated for those particular poems nice um, that, was, that was something that i was i was talking with a friend of mine about that like having a bunch of people just read poetry in the same room together is what i imagine would be kind of an uncomfortable experience for a lot of people yeah so to give like to add music to that would to give them that sort of external space that they could let themselves kind of like slip into Sure. Or lose themselves with, or act as sort of like dividers from the other people that are that are there. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. That's that's a possibility, and that's mm-hmm. one that I keep coming back to. But I don't like. I'm not entirely sure if that would, if that would work, or not. Yeah. Um, Gotta try. Find yeah. Out. I was. I, that's actually for the my first reading or for my reading at um, in Vermont. That's what I was going to do. Um, and after the the first salon, I was like, "Oh shit, these poems actually want to be read aloud." I was like, "Yeah." Well, I guess that's going on the back burner. Um. Yeah, but cool. I want to go to that show. I the when if if I can pull this thing off, I might take it on the road, and I will for sure stop in Dallas if yeah. I do. Um, yeah. Because I feel I feel like I could do like a mid-atlantic like gulf coast tour and be i don't know oh shit so i i am currently in a band and if we ever go on tour 
I could potentially be the opening act for the band with just this, like, with that yeah. stuff. Ready-made. Yeah. Huh. I'm going to have to think about this. But anyway, um, <laughs> I think that this will be a wrap on episode ni- 19? Mm-hmm. 19. And season two. Um, so thank you so much for for wanting, for spending, I don't know, however, like two, no, yeah, two, yeah. almost two and a half hours talking poetry. It was such a pleasure. Um, and I'm so glad that I finally figured out how to record over Skype because this, it's so much, it's, there's so many, there's so many poets that I've wanted to talk to that don't live in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, and this, like, season two, might, I mean, season three might be every, like, nobody who lives in, fuck Baltimore, nobody who lives in Baltimore I want to talk to anymore. Um, <laughs> except they're like, three or four people that I, I should, but anyway, um, <laughs> as is, uh, I guess customary through season two, although season three, I will try to actually have a good sign off. Um, mm-hmm. if you would like, if you'd like to come up with a sign off or if you have anything that you'd like to say as a, as a means to leave the, uh, the podcast, you're more than welcome. Oh God. The only thing that's popping into my head is that's all folks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> but it's not all. There's so much more. That's all, folks, with an asterisk. Yeah. On the end. Of it. Um, but thank you. So, before <laughs> before signing off, uh, thank you everyone who has listened. Um, yes, I I checked uh, the. This might just be a standard thing, but I just tell you the the stats update. Um, mm-hmm. But. You might be interested in this. Um, there was a listener from a couple of listeners from Canada, some from France, and a couple from Denmark in the last couple of weeks. That like, I don't know who the hell these people are, but they're listening, and that's awesome. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, thank you. Um, it's it's a it's this is great fun, and it's very rewarding to know that there are people that are out there that are actually like um, seem to be enjoying it. Um, so, um, yeah, so I guess that's all, folks, with an asterisk. <laughs> or that's parentheses, not all. <laughs> I, like, I like that better. Um, <laughs> that's not all, folks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll be, I'll be back in a, about a month or so. Um, and that's not all, folks. <laughs>